Well, if you've uh, been with us for the last number of weeks, you know that we are uh, going through uh, a series, a preaching series through the book of Judges, which is uh, traditionally a fairly difficult book um, to understand, and uh, which is one reason why we're picking it. We need to we need to know what's in this Bible that we say is is life and uh, and sustenance for us. Um, we've also been, instead of uh, reading the passage that, uh, from Judges, because they're typically long passages, this, this uh, story this week, the story of Gideon, stretches over three chapters, and I'll do one and a half chapters this week, and then one and a half chapters next week. So instead of reading all that, um, we feel great liberty and, and freedom to tell those stories, much like they would have been told uh, at any given point in the history of God's people, uh, just just like we're sitting around and chatting, like we're uh, at the end of a long day, and we want to uh, to hear a story that that reminds us and helps us know again who we are and how we're to be in the world, and and, and reminds us of who this God is that we that we serve and who's who says He's ever present and always listening um, and ever helpful. So that's what we've been doing. Um, if you want to read the passage, it went out this week on the Rock Creek Announce and on the, the Wednesday email that we send out with announcements and stuff. The passage was in there. It'll be in there again um, this coming week. So you can read the passage beforehand uh, before you get here if you'd like. Um, before we jump in, would you, uh, would you pray with me? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, you say that you are very, very patient with the weak and the uncertain, the fearful. You have a certain affinity for inability, it seems. So show that affinity even this morning um, for those of us unable to speak and those of us uh, deficient in hearing and come and meet with us and tell us again this great story <clears throat> that puts us in our place in the world. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So this, uh, this section of Judges is about Gideon, probably the, one of two most well-known judges in this book. Uh, and it comes on the heels of uh, Deborah and Barak, and there was a period of peace in the land after they expelled the enemy again. And, and uh, as you would expect from, uh, from this book of Judges, the cycle repeats. There was a period of peace, and then the people forget God, and they, uh, and they start living According to the nations around them, they start loving the things that the other nations love. They start being drawn to and attracted to the objects of affection and the, and the goals that the other nations live by. And God, because he's so, he's so merciful and he won't have anything but the best for his people, um, says to his people, finally, okay, if you want to live... If you want that, I'll give it to you. And that's, uh, that's God's way of wooing them back. That's God's way of saying, if you, want to, uh, if you want to live by gods that are no gods and, and deficient and uh, uh, broken objects of worship and affection, then I'll give them to you and we'll see what happens. And that's what he does here in this, in this passage. Um, the Midianites, an ancient enemy of Israel, 
says, uh, it says that they were coming into the land and they were wiping out everything. They were invading God's sacred land and they were laying waste to it. They were wasting the land, literally. They were scraping it clean of all the, the crops. It says whenever God's people would plant the crops, here come the Midianites, innumerable numbers of them. Just out of this, out of, you can't even picture how many of these people are coming up and taking all the crops out of land, taking all the livestock out of the land, and even God's people are, finding, are, are uh, making holes in the ground and hiding in caves. Now, <clears throat> if we are putting ourselves in the place of one of God's children for centuries and centuries and millennia who have been hearing this story and telling it and retelling it, then we are immediately reminded of this. As we hear that part, Midian comes in and wipes the, the land out. We're immediately hearing, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void. Formless and void is a major theme in God's, uh, in God's story of rescue of his people. And, uh, and the earth starts out that way, and the creation story is the, God, is the story of God uh, giving it form and filling it. And we're going to find out that this story, too, is, an, uh, is a story of God's people living in uncreation. There, is, there are no plants. There are no animals. Even the people are hiding below ground. They're subhuman. It is an uncreation story, and God will rescue his people in a way that's very familiar to us. So God's people cried out to him. They couldn't take it any longer. And in, in a great curiosity, God listened to their voice, even though his people refused to listen to his voice. And he sent them a prophet. And this prophet says to God's people, don't forget, this. you still have the same God who rescued you out of Egypt. Who saved you. And, and again, if we are little Israelite children... We have these images flashing in our mind. The the Midianites wiped clean this land and put it to uncreation. And God had wiped clean Egypt. All the plants are gone. There's hail and locusts that destroyed all the plants. The livestock are dead. And even light was turned to darkness in the land of Egypt. And God rescued his people out of uncreation. We're hearing that again, even in this prophet's words. And there was an angel who was sitting by an oak near to where Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press. We're told immediately that's that's great characterization and a story to tell us something about what that character was doing. Uh, Gideon was threshing wheat, which means he was taking the, the, the whole wheat that had been harvested and throwing it up in the air. And what's supposed to happen is the wind's supposed to blow through it, blow out the chaff, and the seed falls back to the, to the basket or to the earth, and you can collect the seed, and the chaff is gone. But he's doing it in a wine press, which is this big hollow in the ground, way down, like a pretty deep hollow in the ground, scooped out section, because he's afraid of the Midianites coming to, to, to steal what he's harvested. So we know already that he is, he's living in fear. And he's, he's not really a very good farmer because there's no wind underground. It's all right. 
I don't know, maybe he was making his own wind. Something like that. It can't be very effective. Regardless, he's, he's living in fear, and this, this angel appears to him and says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Which right away, you're gonna, we need to laugh at because he's not a mighty man. And he contradicts it immediately, and he says, I'm not a mighty man of valor. I'm the least of my father's family, and we're the least clan in our tribe. Pick somebody else. He says, if the Lord is with us, then why? And he's the same God who delivered our people out of Egypt. Why is all this bad stuff happening if the Lord is with us? Where, why is all this going so wrong? How can I save Israel? And the Lord says to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. As one man. And Gideon hears the word of God who has heard his cry. God heard the cry of his people and sent an angel to speak God's words to his people. And and Gideon immediately says, your word's not enough. I need a sign. And so he goes into the house. and and um, And he kills a lamb. And he makes unleavened bread and some broth. And he brings it out. And again, if we're a little Israelite children... We've just heard that here is a rescuer that God is appearing to and says, you're going to rescue my people. And, the, and, and he's argued with, no, don't send me. Send somebody else. That sounds just like Moses. In fact, the, the dialogue here is, is very, very similar to Moses. The, the author of this book is really wanting us to pick that up. That this is going to be an Egypt-like rescue. This is going to be a rescue out of uncreation, out of subhuman state into full humanity. And then he brings him and he kills a lamb and brings him unleavened bread. Which should also remind us of the Passover meal. God is about to enact a rescue here. There's a meal being eaten too. And, um, and, and he sets it before him. The angel says, put it on the rock and pour the broth over all of it. And he touches the staff to it and burns it up in fire. The sign is a sign of fire, just like the sign to Moses was a burning bush. See, these these parallels are going because God is, again, going to do something amazing for his people. Immediately, Gideon builds an altar to the Lord. And that night, the Lord comes to him and he says, Gideon, I've got your first task for you. You're going to be my my agent of rescue for my people, and I've got your first job. It's going to be a a tough obedience. I want you to go and destroy the altar to the fake god called Baal that your father has set up. I want you to destroy that altar and cut down the Asherah pole next to it, which is another object of worship. And so Gideon does that. He grabs ten men, but he goes at night because he's afraid of the men of the town. Now it's important to recognize that, that Gideon has already asked for a sign the word wasn't enough. He asked for a sign. And now he's, he's going at night. But obedience was mandatory, but heroism was not. It's okay. He didn't have to be a big hero. He did obey. And he cuts it down and he rebuilds a new altar to the Lord God. And he sacrifices the bull in it using the, the, the wood from the Asherah pole. So the first step is destroying the enemy within for God's people, purging the fake gods out of God's people's land. And the men of the town wake up the next morning. They find out what's happened. 
they do some digging around, and they find out that it was Gideon, and they say, this guy's got to die. He desecrated Baal. And apparently Gideon's first convert was his dad. Because his dad comes out and says, um, you know, in a, in, in a ringing echoes of so many other Bible stories, if Baal is a real god, then let Baal fight his own battles. If Baal's real at all, let him kill Gideon. Baal is the one who's been offended. Let Baal fight his own battles. And so they call Gideon Zerubbabel, meaning um, let Baal contend with him. Let this God fight against him, if you will. And Obviously, it's ironic. But, uh, Gideon lives and display, is a walking display of the, uh, the falsehood of Baal, the false God that God's people has adopted. From there, the Midianites come again. They're coming like locusts again, like the locusts that swept through Egypt and, and took everything out of it. The Midianites are coming into God's land. Again, they're going to wipe it clean. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and Gideon blows the trumpet to muster the troops, and all the fighting men of his clan rally to him. He sends word, and many other clans and tribes rally to him all at once, and it's another great sign. Here's this weak man who, who gives a battle cry, a rallying cry, and people actually respond. And it looks as if what the angel has said is going to come true, that he's going to fight against Midian as one man. He's going to unite God's people to fight against Midian. And they're rallied. And Gideon says, it's, it's really not enough that you've appeared and spoken to me. It's not quite enough that you sent me this sign. It's not enough that you've protected me and kept me alive as I obeyed you. It's not enough that these troops have mustered to me like you said they would. I need another sign. I need another sign. And, he, and he, the, the famous passage about the, uh, the fleece of wool, he says, I'm going to lay this fleece on the ground, God. If you want me to go up against, Gideon, uh, against the Midianites, then make all the ground dry in the morning and the fleece wet with dew. And it was so. And he wrung out the fleece and it filled an entire bowl full. And Gideon says again, reminding us yet again, this is a very weak and fearful man. He is not like a hero to be emulated. He says, do it again except reverse God. And God does it. All the ground is wet and the fleece is dry. God patiently and persistently works with Gideon where he is, meets him where he is. And then Gideon and all the people rose up and they marched towards the Midianites, the army of Midian. And they encamped by the creek called Trembling, which is another reminder of who this man is and who God's people are. They're very afraid. They're trembling. <clears throat> and God says to Gideon, listen, there's 32,000 people here. And if I let you guys fight against the Midianites, you might think that you are just good enough, smart enough, strong enough, brave enough to deliver yourselves, and then you'll go back to, to living on your own like you were before. You remember how wrong things went? I don't want that to happen to you again. I don't want you to live as if you're all on your own. 
and that everything is dependent on your own strength. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send some people home and say, Gideon, tell whoever is scared, it's okay, you can go home. And 22,000 men left and went home. And God says there's 10,000 left. That's still too many. You still might find some way to say that you defeated this enemy that is innumerable before you. So take everybody down to the, to the creek and let them have a drink of water and take some who drink one way and set them over here and some who drink this other way and set them over here. It's really not important how they drink or what because some people have tried to say that, that God is trying to set aside like this crack troop of like the, the people who really know how to drink water. But that's the whole point is like these are a bunch of bumbling yokels. Um, and they, they just, they don't even, um, they go into battle without any weapons. Like, it's ridiculous. That's the whole point of the story. So he's not setting aside a crack troop. He's just whittling down the numbers. And, um, and with 300 left, he says, Gideon, tell everybody else to go home. And we're going to do this with 300. And he says, now, Gideon, after I've appeared to you, I've sent a prophet, I've sent an angel, I've sent you the sign of the meal that got burnt up. I've mustered the troops to you. I've protected you when, you when you obeyed me about the altar. I've done the fleece thing. Now, I've given them into your hand. Go down and fight. And, and he beats them to the punch. If you're still scared, I'm going to give you one more. Can you believe that? Gideon doesn't even ask. God beats them to the punch and he says, but I know who you are. I know you, Gideon. Let me give you one more. So Gideon takes his servant Joash and they creep down into the camp of Midian. And, they, and at the outpost, at the watch, they, they creep close enough to hear two guards talking. They can overhear them. And one guard says to the other, I had a strange dream last night, really weird. There was this little cake and it rolled into the camp, down the hill into the camp and right up against the tent and the whole tent flipped over. The whole thing was overthrown. And the other guard says, I know what this is. That is Gideon. And God has given this camp into his hand. And, it says, and, and, and Gideon at that moment fell down and worshipped. And we're all like, finally. Finally. And it took the, the word of a pagan. Gideon believed the word and the dream and the interpretation of a pagan beyond his own God's word. And he, and he returns to his camp. He says, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. You know, it's pretty clear in this story that God has a preference for inability. He seems to have a preference for inability and weakness. Because that's the case, that's really good news to me. I've got a particular weakness that is a constant thorn in my side. And it, and it comes about in moments like this. Hey, Corby, would you grab an avocado out of the refrigerator? And immediately my pulse picks up. And like a little bit of sweat right here, maybe here. I just like the anxiety starts kicking in because I cannot find a blessed thing like right in front of my face. It just does not register. And it doesn't matter what I do. I, I can't register it. it. I am looking. Oh, my goodness. I get all worked up even talking about it. 
Go find an avocado. Okay, I will find a brown and green avocado. Looks about like this in the vegetable drawer. Maybe in the fruit drawer. That's where I know that I will find it if it's there and looks just like this. But wait a second. What if that avocado is not in the vegetable or fruit drawer? Sucker's actively hiding from me. How can I be expected? What if it's a cut in half avocado so it doesn't look like an oval? That's way out. Maybe it's got the seed still in that half. Maybe the seed is out of that half. Maybe it's in a Tupperware. Maybe that Tupperware is behind something. Maybe it's not in a Tupperware and behind something. Are you kidding me? Do you realize the task that I've just been handed here? It's stinking Herculean. No, I cannot find an avocado. And I talk just like that. I don't think there's one here. The voice rises and kids get stiff-armed. Like, no, just I'm looking. Can't you see? I'm on a quest. I can't stand that weakness. In those moments, like when I really get frustrated and we're in a hurry and I can tell... Uh, you know, I can tell, like, dude, the kids are, like, the, they're doing the noise thing. And, uh, and, and I'm getting all worked up. If I could, like, had some formula where I could just beat my head on the refrigerator three times, and all of a sudden, like, I would have, the, like, the fog would lift, I would do it every time. If I could just, uh, if I could, like, punish myself into gaining this ability, I would absolutely do it. Because I hate it about myself, and I want to actually... I want, it to, I want it to change. I want to be able to find things in my home and be helpful. I don't want to be reliant on Rachel's patience with me. I'd much rather her be impressed with me. I really like admiration. I would like her to be like, man, that is awesome. Thank you. Wow. You know, and just like under her breath, even later, found that avocado. Like, I would love that. That's what I want. But if I can't find an avocado, that's not what I'm going to get. I get patience. I get mercy. I don't want to depend on Rachel's mercy. I don't trust her patience. I want to depend on me and my abilities. I hate my weaknesses, and I want to hide them like the Israelites hiding in the ground. The first thing that God does here that he's telling us is that because I'm a God who has a fondness for weaknesses and inabilities and insufficiencies, I particularly like those people. You can't, you can't despise yourself anymore. You can't hate that anymore. You can't try and beat people to the punch anymore. I know I'm a moron. I know, I know, I know. Man, I can't believe how stupid I am. Can you? Oh, my gosh. That has no place. God loves the weak. He loves inabilities. God has blush-inducing patience with Gideon. I am embarrassed for Gideon. 
I would want to run away. I mean, I would argue with God like Gideon did. If at that many times I still didn't believe him, I'd be like, God, seriously, it's just go away. I can't handle this. You are showing me again and again that I'm weak and I'm fearful, and I don't want to see it anymore. I'd much rather hide it. I'd much rather hide it. Dan Allender, in his book, Leading with a Limp, says, To admit we are foolish, weak, and in need of repentance gives the vindictive and the self-righteous camp plenty of ammunition to turn against us and to turn others against us. But the alternatives to living in and living out truth are far worse. We either hide from truth or we choose to spin our sin and our story. You know, the alternative is to lie, is to hide it and lie and to spin and to, and, to, and to put some kind of positive spin on it. The alternative, the alternative is worse. It's worse. I'll say this briefly, but, but weakness, need, that's the point, that's like the, the point of embarkation for relationships. I was talking to a um, to one of our uh, one of our friends around here at Rock Creek, and they were talking about their their old um, this small group that they were part of, an adult small group, and how they um, they had a great kind of community thing going where they they enjoyed each other, they spent time together, and and uh, and then it just kind of fell apart. And he said, "You know, when I think it fell apart is when we started." kenneling our dog. We could finally afford to put our dog in a kennel when we left town. See, none of us, we were all just poor. And so we swapped. Yeah, I'll take your dog while you're out of town. Will you take mine next month when I'm going to visit family? Sure. And we had this kind of economy of dependence on each other. And it just set, it was the jumping off point for interdependence with each other. For knowing that I've got need. And I, uh, am thrilled that you would like to help me with it. And I am honored that you would allow me to help you with your need. Need is the embarkation point for a, for a relationship. And if we hide it, like Alan said, if we spin it, it's a really lonely place. We can't despise the weakness that we find because God doesn't. I also can no longer despise others. I've got a friend named Jamie Burke who is uh, an upper-level kind of dude in management in GlaxoSmithKline, which is a pharmaceutical company. Um, he's kind of a big deal. And he was interviewing. He was telling me about this interview that um, he was interviewing for a promotion. And they asked him, so how do, what do you think when you go into a new situation, Jamie, how are you going to handle kind of new problems, a new team, uh, new responsibilities? And he said, well, when I, the, the moment I walk into that room to start addressing that, I know two things are absolutely true. I know that I will meet a friend and that I will learn something from him or her. That I'm going to meet a friend and I'm going to learn something from him or, him or her. This is a man, you can't go into a situation like that despising your own weakness or despising other people and thinking they have nothing to teach you a man who's embraced weakness. He said, I've got need. You see, most of us um, either major on despising our own weaknesses or despising the weaknesses of others. 
Sometimes we don't want to be around someone whose reputation is weaker than ours because it's going to tarnish what we've worked hard to build. Sometimes we don't want to be around people whose finances are weaker than ours because their needs may impose on our freedoms. I think this is the reason that most of us, um, either in the past or present, would never date somebody two rungs above us on the social ladder or two rungs below us on the social ladder. If we were dating, so if we try to, if we dated somebody two rungs below us on the social ladder, then I don't know. They're they're kind of their lack of cred is going to rub off on me. I can't take that. Remember, I'm trying to hide my weaknesses. I'm trying to spin it so I look strong and capable. I can't date somebody two rungs above me. Goodness gracious. Then I'll look weak. I'll look like the needy one. People will think I'm the mercy case. I'm the pity case over here. But because God says I delight in weak weaknesses, I delight to use weak people, we can't despise ourselves and we can't despise others. But how can you actually accept and be patient with yourself and with others when there is no food, when the land has been wiped away, when, when things are in an uncreation state, when your life is in chaos, when your life has no order, has no sustenance, has no provision, and you feel like all of your life is simply lack and need and all of it is weakness, how can you possibly be patient? We have to know, like Gideon finally found out, that the battle belongs to the Lord. The battle belongs to the Lord. Gideon is a reluctant warrior. We said he's just like Moses. Don't send me. Send somebody else. I can't do it. I need signs. He's a reluctant warrior. And how many signs did he get? depends on what you kind of sign. Four or five different signs, miraculous things that God did to show him, I am with you. I will walk with you. I will fight this battle for you. But there was another warrior. There was another warrior who was reluctant. And before his great battle, he prayed to his God, if there is any way, let this cup pass from me. If there is any way, don't let me fight this battle. He did not receive signs, but silence. He believed the word of his God more than what his eyes could see. And he went to fight the battle. Gideon, before his battle, sees his followers fleeing. If you're scared, go away. If you drink wrong, go away. And he's left with very few 300 of his friends and followers to fight an innumerable enemy so they could fight as one man, as the angel had said. But our warrior, Jesus, saw all of his friends, every one of them leave, and he faced the great battle all alone as one man to defeat God's enemies. 
and the enemies of God's people. Jesus rescued in an even greater way than, than, than Gideon. And here's what he rescued us into. This is really exciting. When God rescues, he recreates. When God rescues, he recreates. When he brought, when he brought uh, Israel out of Egypt, he brought them into a particular land flowing with milk and honey. Just like the Garden of Eden, full of abundance, full of possibility, full of sustenance. When he rescues, he recreates. He takes Israel out of formless and void. No plants, no animals, people underground, living as subhumans. And he brings them into new creation. He says at the end of the story that the land knew peace, that is shalom, prosperity. All is right with the world-ness. My favorite description of new creation is from The Magician's Nephew by C.S. Lewis, where he talks about um, Polly and Diggory being present for the new creation of Narnia. And they're there as Narnia comes alive as a world, and Diggory says about his sick mother, if she was only here for a few minutes, just breathing the air that's in this place would make her well. I know it, because the air is full of life. And there's, uh, there's, there's a, a, a piece of a lamppost that gets dropped in the ground, and, and up from that springs an iron tree because the, the ground is so full of life. It's, it's untouched, and it has so much uh, um, vibrancy in it. The same thing happens with a gold and a silver coin that turn into gold and silver trees. The same thing happens when the children decide they're going to try this out and plant a, uh, a toffee in the ground, and overnight up grows a toffee candy fruit tree. Because the ground is full of life. The world is just vibrating with life. It's full of sustenance. And Aslan says about this world, this world is bursting with life for these few days because the song with which I called it into life still hangs in the air and rumbles in the ground. This is the rescue that God brings about for his children. Recreation. When he recreates, he brings new possibility. He brings new life. He brings surprising, uh, surprising capabilities. You know when you get a new car, it's really nice and it's all clean and it smells really good? And that's, that's wonderful, but it's also empty. It's not really yours yet. Like there's no change. And when you go to pay the parking, you're like, dang it, I'm going to change in my new car. There's, no, there's not like pens stuck in every little place around. So, and you need, oh, don't have my pen. It's just not yours yet. So God's new creation is better than a new car. It's, it's, it's new and clean, but it's not empty. It's full of life. It's full of you. When you are recreated, this is God's favorite way to talk about what forgiveness means. What being accepted by him means. What being given the righteousness of Christ means. He loves this idea of recreation, this picture of recreation, new creation, squeaky clean and full of possibilities, full of life. 
It's when you come to him again and say, I hate that I can't find things, and I want to hide it, and I want to spin it, and I want to tell everybody else it's their fault. I'm sorry that I don't want to be dependent on your patience, Lord. I'm sorry that I want to be strong and independent. I'm sorry. He brings about recreation in that moment. Now, just because a house is clean doesn't mean it has all the amenities. Just because it's new. Like, I will never play billiards in my house. It has not a billiards room. Just because it's clean, just because it's set in order, doesn't mean I'm going to have, I don't have a pool. Never going to swim in a pool at my house. There isn't one. I'm, I may never be able to find things ever. That's just a natural gift. I don't have it. It's a weakness. But the way I deal with it, the way I want to hide it because I can't be dependent on God's patience or anybody else's because I can't be the charity case. That is what God wants to change. And so there are new possibilities. You can bring that into the open. You don't have to be ashamed of that. Recreation. And that leads us into being able to, uh, to not despise others and their weakness and what their weakness costs us. It leads us into relationship and to being created as God's whole family. We're not isolated in self-protection anymore. You know, one of the things I love about the Bible is that it, it talks a lot about food. I'm a pretty big fan of food. And in every one of these recreation moments, food shows up. As soon as God creates Adam and Eve, he tells them what they should eat. He tells them, enjoy the good stuff that I have provided for you. When he rescues Noah through the flood, one of the first instructions he gives them is what he's allowed to eat. I think that's funny.
meal to build your tent. Yet on the night that he was betrayed, when he was with his followers, Jesus took the bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it in front of them and said, This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In like manner, after the meal, he took the cup. And he said, This cup is the new covenant shed in my blood for the forgiveness of the sins of many. Drink from it, all of you. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. This is a meal for the weak. It is a meal for Gideon, who keeps asking again and again, I need a sign. I need something else. And he is so good that he beats us to the punch. He didn't even want, happy didn't know it's communion Sunday. It's totally fine. Here's the meal he's setting before you. He's given it to you. Before you even ask, he knows you need it. He loves weak people. Father, we ask that you set aside these 